Hi everyone and welcome to the first official episode of Dark as Hell. Uh, my name is Maggie and I'll be your host if you didn't catch the intro trailer I dropped yesterday. Uh, I'm so excited to start this adventure into the true crime realm and explore my love of storytelling at the exact same time. Honestly, who knew getting laid off by the Rona would end up with me doing exactly what everyone said not to do in quarantine, aka starting a podcast. But now with all that said, let's get down to business and dive on in. This week, I'm going to be telling you the story of not just one death, but two. Two very mysterious, baffling, just all-around bizarre cases that are linked together in their tragedy and in the insane amount of hashtag questions that still surround them. It's a little macabre. It's a lot suspicious. There are some really poorly named twin sisters, which just physically pains me as a twin myself. So trust me when I say there are a lot of fucking hashtag questions to get to at the end of this episode. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the mysterious death of Rebecca Zahal. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. The year was 2011, and 32-year-old Rebecca Zahal was, for all intents and purposes to the outside eye, living what seemed to be her best life. After immigrating to the United States from Burma in her 20s, Rebecca had established herself as a successful ophthalmic technician in Scottsdale, Arizona. She was known to love travel, having lived in Nepal and Germany before settling in the U.S. She was a talented artist, and she was deeply connected to her Christian faith. Her older sister described Rebecca as vibrant and compassionate and that she could make you laugh even on your worst day. In 2002, Rebecca married a nursing student, Neil Nalepa, but they officially divorced in February 2011. Prior to that official divorce, though, Rebecca had found love again in 2008 with Jonah Shackneim, an uber-successful multimillionaire pharmaceutical tycoon who was 22 years her senior. Talk about meet cute meets securing her own bag because Rebecca actually met Jonah while performing an eye exam on him. And apparently he was just smitten with Rebecca, even despite having his eyes dilated. A little background on Rebecca's new man. Jonah Shackman was truly a giant in the pharma world. He founded Medici's Pharmaceutical in 1988, and the company developed and sold products such as Liposonics and the Botox alternatives, Diaspor and Restylane. So Needless to say, Homeboy was absolutely loaded. By December 2010, Rebecca had actually quit her job to spend more time with Jonah and his three children from previous marriages as the blended family split their time between Arizona in the winter months and the damn near palatial mansion that Jonah owned in the beach town of Coronado, California. This was the Spreckles Mansion, a historically preserved landmark that Jonah and Rebecca called home while they escaped the Arizona heat in the summer. Like I said, for all appearances, Rebecca was happy with the state of her life in the summer of 2011. But as we all know, appearances aren't everything, and we never really know what's going on behind closed doors until those doors burst open. Of, of Jonah's three children, Rebecca was especially close with his six-year-old son, Max, 
whose mother, Dina Romana, lived just a few houses away from the Coronado house. The divorce between Jonah and Dina had been a contentious one, according to police reports. Over the years, police have been called to both the Spreckles mansion and Dina's home, and the Arizona police have been called to settle domestic disputes between the two on more than one occasion. According to Mary Zahal, who is speaking to a San Diego reader, Dina made life difficult for Rebecca, and she was known to be hostile towards her, even as Rebecca tried to connect and mesh and essentially filled the role of another mother figure for the three children in her partner's life. The tension between Rebecca and Dina wasn't helped by the fact that Jonah's two teenage children from his first marriage were basically allowed to be openly rude towards Rebecca. Again, according to her sister Mary, they, quote, didn't want her, period. They resented her and Jonah wouldn't defend her. She was disappointed in his kids, end quote. Rebecca divulged her frustration through private writings, which we'll get to. I personally already have almost non-existent levels of tolerance for teenagers' bullshit, having been a teenager full of bullshit myself, so I can't imagine how equally frustrating and painful it must have been for Rebecca to deal with so much hostility from the family she was trying to become a part of. Teenage bullshit is annoying on its own, but to have your partner's children openly disrespect and disparage you to your face is just on another inexcusable level. And it's just like the animosity was truly coming from inside the house, girlfriend. Despite all of this, while Rebecca struggled to bond with the older children and she grappled with Dina's hostility towards her, she found a little sidekick in six-year-old Max. The attachment between the two was well known and Rebecca was all too happy to genuinely engage with Maxie as she called him. There was no phoning in on their relationship, and she could often be found playing make-believe games right on the floor with him, reading book after book, and developing their relationship even more when she left her job to spend more time caring for him. Rebecca even confided in her sister that Max felt like her own son, since she had helped raise him from the time he was four years old. And then, the myriad of cracks that were starting to appear throughout the foundation of the Sparkles Mansion inhabitants' lives gave way. On July 11th, 2011. July 11, 2011, dawned bright, sunny, and classically California beautiful. Rebecca's 13-year-old sister, Zena, had been spending the last two days visiting from Missouri, and along with Max, they were settling in to start their day together. Jonah was not in the house at the time, having dropped his teenagers at the airport and taken the opportunity to go to a neighborhood gym. So, well, Zena showered and Rebecca was using a bathroom on the ground floor of the house, Max had no one closely watching him around 10 a.m., which is when he apparently tumbled over his second-story banister and landed on the floor face first. His razor scooter twisted between his legs, a few soccer balls scattered around the foyer, and shards of chandelier gas glass surrounding him that he had brought down in his fall. Within moments, Becca had raced out of the bathroom. Zena is on the phone with 911, and the operator can hear Rebecca crying in the background, even as she performs CPR on the unresponsive Max. Emergency personnel arrived at the house at 10.30, and there are several accounts from witnesses about things that took place while the paramedics worked on Max. Number one, Rebecca had performed CPR on him, but he was not moving or breathing when they arrived. Two, Paramedics described Rebecca as being in a state of shock while she kneeled by Max's side, but she wasn't hysterical by any means. Three, in fact, once police officers arrived on the scene, 
The police therapist that accompanied them to accidents like this later testified that though Rebecca was tearful and anxious, she gave, quote, no indication of depression, nor did she state anything regarding feeling guilty or of regret. This therapist was at the house for several hours, watching and engaging with Rebecca, and saw no strange or alarming behavior outside of what was to be expected from the circumstances. The only eyebrow-raising thing to mention, a police officer from the scene later claimed to have heard Rebecca say, Dina is going to kill me to her sister. And honestly, I think any of us would say the same. If we were in Rebecca's position, if our scary boyfriend's ex-wife was Dina Romano, as we will explore later. Max was taken by ambulance to a local hospital, but the severity of his injuries called for him to be transferred to Ratty Children's Hospital, where Jonah and Dina would hold a vigil for their son. The manner and impact of how Max fell severely damaged facial bones, as well as his spinal cord. The facial injuries were so severe they impacted his heart rate and airways. Though Rebecca told police she thought Max had said Ocean, which was the name of her dog when she reached his side after he fell, this has since been brought into question because investigators and medical experts believe that Max wouldn't have even been capable of speaking after his fall. While the Shackmeyers were at the hospital, Rebecca did what she did best at the Sparkles Mansion. She led the charge of caring for everyone. Throughout the course of the day, she was on and off the phone, making arrangements for her sister to fly back home to Missouri, coordinating with Jonah's brother Adam and Nina, Dina's twin sister, like I said, why? <laughs> Nina, Dina, it hurts me. But she coordinated with Nina, Dina's twin sister, to arrive to help their respective sibling during the difficult time. After a traumatic day, one Rebecca filled with organizing, responding to messages about Max, coordinating with various family members, she still had it in her to send a positive text to Jonah seven hours after the accident saying, I have no words. I'm thinking about you and Maxie. He will be okay. The next day, July 12th, Rebecca dropped Zena off at the airport so she could return home to Missouri. While there, she picked up Adam Shackney and Nina Romano. Adam, Jonah's younger brother who worked as a tugboat operator, sidebar, I am pointedly pointing out that this is an important detail, had flown in from Memphis, and Nina had similarly flown in to be with her twin sister. Nina would be staying at Dina's house, I can't even say that with a straight face, just around the corner from the Sparkles Mansion, but Adam and Jonah had decided that he would stay in the guest house located on the grounds of the mansion. With Jonah only leaving Max's side to get some rest at the Ronald McDonald house near the hospital, Rebecca and Adam were the only two people staying on the property. That night, Jonah, Adam, and Rebecca shared a quick dinner together. At 7.51 p.m., Rebecca texts Jonah, Hi, babe. I left you Max's little monkey at the main lobby. Thought you might want to keep it in your pocket. I love you so much, babe. And Max will make it through. Know that both of you are in my heart constantly. According to Adam, in later interviews, he claims he said goodnight to Rebecca around 8.30 p.m. He offered a listening ear to her, saying, I know what it's like to lose someone, referencing the death of his mother, but Rebecca indicated she was tired and heading to bed. This would be the last time anyone saw Rebecca alive. Rebecca spent the night texting her sister Mary, including a text message saying, I love Max like he is my own, but he isn't, so I need to be strong for Jonah. She promised her sisters she would call their parents tomorrow and to continue their discussion about a future visit home to the family in Missouri. 
I think there's something really important to note about both her 7.51 p.m. text to Jonah and her last text to her sister. These messages are hopeful. They're emotionally stable. They indicate a mentality that is planning towards the future. At 9.40 p.m., Nina, Dina's sister for those getting confused, <laughs> texted Rebecca asking if she was still awake because she wanted to talk about Max's accident. Nina would later claim that she found Rebecca's behavior from earlier in the day odd and that she wanted some more details about what had happened. I'm not sure why she would want to discuss in detail her nephew's horrific accident at 10 p.m. at night, but sure, whatever, Nina. Rebecca didn't answer the text, which, like, I, 1010, also would not have answered that, but Nina drove over there anyway. I find Nina's behavior to be the odd one here, but again, whatever, grief, anxiety, they all make us do weird things. Though she saw a light on in what she assumed to be Rebecca's bedroom, no one answered the front door and she ended up leaving. A neighbor, Jim Hager, would later come forward to say he'd seen a woman pacing back and forth in front of the Spreckles Mansion front door that night around the time Nina had been there. But he believed he saw Dina, not Nina, because of the dark hair he saw, which would have belonged to Dina, not blonde Nina. Just tuck this little nugget of information away for later, crew. At 12.50 a.m., cell phone records show that Rebecca checked her voicemail, where she had received a message from Jonah, who had called at 12.30. Jonah left a message allegedly sharing the news that Max's condition had taken a grave turn, and the six-year-old was most likely not going to survive his extensive injuries. The exact wording of what Jonah said has never been revealed, because the message ended up being deleted. Roughly six hours after last checking her voicemail, at 6.48 a.m. on July 13th, 2011, Adam Shack and I would be on the phone with 911, screaming. Rebecca Zahau was dead, and no one was prepared for the scene that would await them at the Spreckles Mansion just two days after Max Shackney's eventually fatal accident. At just after 6.45 a.m. that morning, Adam was making his way from the guest house towards the main house in search of coffee. Before he ever made it into the house, though, he came upon the absolutely horrific and baffling sight of Rebecca's naked body hanging from a rope off of the balcony leading into her bedroom. She was bound and gagged in a way that added an additional layer of what the fuck to the entire scene. And I just need to note that in this part of the notes I took for researching this case, I literally have a note saying the amount of times I hissed, this makes no fucking sense. Because it doesn't, it will continue to make no fucking sense, and you're going to be hissing that right along with me as we carry on. The scene of Rebecca's death is truly nothing like I've ever heard of. By the time EMTs and police officers arrived after Adam's frantic phone call to 9-11-9-1-1, he is found performing CPR on her, telling the EMTs that he had already put her down, cut her down before they arrived. But her body was already in rigor mortis, so she'd been dead for a while by this time, and it's clear that there will be no saving her. Adam took the time to text Jonah and then called him to tell him that Rebecca had taken her own life. All right, Adam, just like, what a way to both absolutely ambush your grieving brother, and then also, that's a hell of a claim to make in the midst of one of the weirdest crime scenes in recent memory. As the EMTs transport her body, the officers who had been at the Spreckle Mansion just days before answering Rebecca's own 911 call, 
begin to process the scene. Like I said, it's an absolutely baffling scene to behold. A naked woman with her hands bound behind her back, a gag stuffed in her mouth, blood on her thighs, and her feet tied seemingly flung herself over her balcony. Truly, what the fuck is going on? There are several questions to be asked about the knots from the get-go. These weren't your standard rabbit ears with your sneaker laces garden variety knots. The complexity of the knots raise eyebrows, especially after they realize that the knots are of a nautical nature. In reviewing the actual formulation of the rope around her wrist, experts concluded that the knot was completed on top of her wrist, as opposed to underneath, and thus would have been easily accessed by her hands. With the way the knot was actually tied, it would have been virtually impossible for Rebecca to, Rebecca to have tied it in any way. But even more so, because Rebecca was right-handed, and the knots, in the manner in which they were found, would have been impossible for her to tie dominantly with her right hand. Eyebrows are raised all the further when two computers from the home are seized and found to contain searches for bondage pornography, including search terms of raped, sexy Asian girls, and bondage anime. When police enter the home and begin to examine Rebecca's bedroom, an even more ghastly sight awaits them. Scrawled harshly across a wall in black paint, a message has been left behind and asked, she saved him, can he save her? Again, I would just like to share that I have written in all caps next to this in my notes, what the fuck does it even mean? Because seriously, what the hell does that actually mean? The mind obviously turns to Max's accident, but beyond that, what could this even be referencing? Max's mother, Dina, would later claim that she thought the message was written by someone who knew that Rebecca had performed CPR on Max, which EMTs later said certainly saved his life until they arrived on the scene. But beyond that fledgling smidgen of a theory, the message makes no discernible sense. With the ominous message splattered across the wall, Police officers note several other strange pieces of evidence. In the small hallway leading into her bathroom, there's a bloodstained towel crumpled on the floor. A small knife is found inside of her bedroom, its handle coated in blood on all four sides. Even with the appearance of blood on the towel and on the knife, there are only a few spatters of blood at the bedroom door threshold and nowhere else in the room. Where was this blood from? Rebecca's body had no noticeable knife wounds or puncture marks. She only had a few scratches on her back. More noticeable was actually the paint found on her body, and maybe the paint that wasn't found on her body. There was no black paint found on her palms or fingers, but there was paint found on the inside of her thigh, on her breast, and paint was located around her nipples. Also strangely, there is a complete and utter lack of DNA throughout the case. Rebecca's fingerprints were found around her room because, well, obviously it was her room. However, comprehensive fingerprinting was never done at the scene, which might have even revealed partial prints, which then could have been tested. On her balcony, an imprint of, an imprint of a footprint was found just up against the railing. And just riddle me fucking this. With bound feet, how could she possibly have been hopping towards the balcony, hopped, landed, and stuck that final hop, jump, whatever you want to call it, on the tips of her toes as the footprint shows. Because trust me, I tried to do that just to see if it was even remotely possible, and I almost broke my toe. 
her footprints should have been shuffled, inconclusive messes with the way she was bound and hopping. But then, stranger still, why was there no DNA even on the knife Adam admitted he used to cut Rebecca down? Where is it? Where is all the DNA? (laughs) Somebody tell me because I do not know. During the autopsy, other inexplicable instances were being noticed. Rebecca had four instances of head trauma that initially investigators theorized were from hitting her head against the railing inside of the house after she fell over the balcony. It's a stretch, to say the least, and it wasn't fully supported by the legendary Dr. Werner Spitz. He would later testify that it was only a possibility she could have hit her head, and he would have needed to see the body in its original positioning to more strongly support this possibility. At the request of the Zahao family, a second autopsy was done independently of the San Diego Sheriff's Department, which we will be calling SDSD, and another legendary expert is brought into the case. Dr. Sarah Welch performed this autopsy and found several hashtag interesting conclusions not shared by the SDSD. In addition to those four head traumas, Welch found only minor damage to the cartilage around Rebecca's neck and almost no damage to the vertebrae, which is strange given that she allegedly hung herself. Stranger still because the distance Rebecca's body would have fallen was classified as a long drop, and death by hanging from a long drop ensures the neck actually breaks. But this wasn't the case with Rebecca. Instead, Weck found that something even stranger still, Rebecca's hyoid bone and larynx had been fractured, despite the fact that the noose around her neck had been nowhere near high enough to impact them to the degree that they had been. And all that blood on the steak knife, you might be asking, we have not forgotten about that one, don't worry. Forensic analysis determined that the blood was Rebecca's, but it was her menstrual blood. Rebecca had been on her period, as she had actually told the EMTs who arrived after Max's accident to explain why she was in the bathroom at the time. That knife handle was coated entirely on all four sides with her blood. It's clear the knife handle had been inserted into her. But for the love of God, why? Why any of this? The unexplainable message in the wall, the complex knots Rebecca had no idea of knowing, the anime bondage porn found on the computers, the menstrual blood-soaked knife, the mismatched injuries that couldn't possibly be attributed to death by hanging. For the police in the San Diego Sheriff's Department, it was clear. Obviously, Rebecca Zahow had simply killed herself. And... Just take a few minutes to scream in frustration because Lord knows I did several times throughout my research. On September 2nd, 2011, the SDSD formally announced the suspension of their investigation as they determined Rebecca had died by suicide. According to police, after receiving the voicemail that was deleted and never heard by outside parties from Jonah that Max's death was imminent, Rebecca, in a fit of despair, undressed, wrote the message on the wall, and began to cut the rope she somehow had into sections. She tied one portion of the rope to the bed, bound her feet, placed the noose around her neck, gagged herself with the t-shirt that had been found tied around her head, and only then did she fashion the wrist bindings behind her back. She then hopped, yes, the police maintained that she fucking hopped, over to the balcony where she then leaned over the railing and fell to her death. Again, take a hot sec, let out a scream, circle back when you're ready. 
Needless to say, almost immediately, suspicion and dissent was being raised and railed against the sheriff's department. The Zahal family immediately dismissed the idea that Rebecca had died by suicide. And admittedly, though we can never truly understand what makes a person decide to pursue suicide, from their viewpoint, Rebecca had given no indication she was in the middle of a mental health crisis, even after Max's accident. She had remained noticeably helpful, hopeful, and looking towards the future. She also would never have chosen to die by suicide because of the deep Christian faith she practiced. Dying by suicide would have contradicted everything she believed in religiously, and she never would have chosen to do something so horrific in such a public manner, according to her family. At this point, I need to bring up some really straight-up weird comments that came from the brother Shaq Knight at this time. Though police officers would later share in the Oxygen series Death at the Mansion that they arrived on the scene, quote, already knowing what this was about, aka they assumed Rebecca had died by suicide even before they got to the house, simply because some of them had been on the scene at Max's accident. The idea that Rebecca had died by suicide really seems to have started with Adam. After he called 911, Adam texted Jonah to call him. And then when he had his brother on the phone, Adam said, are you sitting down? Because Rebecca's taken her own life. Now, the crime scene was weird as all hell. And certainly the mind makes the assumption it was a suicide because of the hanging. But like, that's still a hell of a conclusion to jump to. Not even minutes after you find the body of your brother's significant other. While still at the hospital, when telling his ex-wife Dina what had happened, she you know, like a normal human would, wondered aloud why Rebecca would have taken her life. Jonah allegedly answered her by saying Asian honor and allegedly made the gesture of stabbing himself in the stomach in a gesture allegedly resembling the practice of seppuku in which individuals would publicly disembowel themselves to restore honor to their family after bringing shame upon them. Please note how many times I'm saying allegedly. On July 13th, just two days later, Jonah was being interviewed by police when another weird comment cropped up. In discussing the events of Rebecca's death, Jonah allegedly said, she comes from a true Asian background. They just look at things differently in terms of responsibility. What is up with the confirmation bias going around and this seemingly incessant belief that Rebecca decided to perform an honor killing on herself? Sam Louie, an Asian honor expert, believes that there is the possibility Rebecca may have felt enough internalized cultural guilt and fear about having been with Max at the time of his accident that she may have been drawn to the idea of ending her life to right the wrongs of the situation, so to speak. But his alignment with that possibility ends with the fact that Rebecca was naked when she died in a public manner. Nudity is considered extremely shameful in Asian cultures, and Sam Louis believes the fact that Rebecca was naked discredits the theory she chose to end her life in such a public way. Rebecca's sister Mary also believes Rebecca would never have chosen to be found naked in public after taking her life. She's quoted as saying, just the fact her family would have seen her that way, she would never have done it. The family also believes Rebecca did not feel a strong sense of guilt that Jonah Shacknight theorized led her to taking her own life. Rebecca's sister Snowham reported in 2013 that while Rebecca was, quote, sad, of course, because she loved the boy, she never, ever said anything or felt responsible for his fall. We should recall, Rebecca had made plans to call her parents the night before she died. She had discussed plans to visit her family in Missouri later in the summer, and she was generally holding strong in her hope 
Max would recover from his injuries while she supported Jonah during the interim. Rebecca had only just been given the news by Jonah that Max's injuries were far more substantial than they believed, and she certainly had no idea he would die five days after her own death. The idea that she would suddenly snap and choose to die by suicide while naked and in a very public way that ensured she would be seen publicly seems to go against the very ethos of who Rebecca was. The Zahal family was so sure that the SDSD had mishandled the investigation and Rebecca's death was in fact a murder that, after unsuccessfully requesting that then-Attorney General Kamala Harris intervene, the legal battles began. In 2013, the Zahal family filed two suits. One, demanding that the case be reopened for a criminal investigation, and two, a civil court wrongful death suit against Adam Shacknai and... Tina and Nina Romano were also being blamed for Rebecca's death. This, to the shock of no one, absolutely outraged Dina. The Zahal family lawyer, Keith Greer, substantiated the theory that the sisters were at the mansion based on eyewitness testimony from neighbor Jim Hager. We knew Nina was at the house because, well, she admitted she'd gone over on the night that Rebecca died around 10 p.m. to see if she could talk to her more about Max's accident. Truly no earthly idea why she felt so compelled to do so at 10 p.m., but I guess that's neither here nor there. However, Jim Hager claimed he saw Dina at the house as well at the same time. Keith Greer then laid the foundation for the family's theory. Dina and Nina had rocked up to the Spreckles mansion to confront Rebecca about Max's accident, spurred on by Dina's long-term disdain for her ex-husband's new girlfriend. A scuffle ensued, wherein Dina hit Rebecca four times over the head, shout out to the unexplained forehead traumas, and Adam became involved to either help the women take down Rebecca, or he helped them cover up what they'd done. While it might seem like a bit of a stretch, narrator voice, it was indeed quite the stretch, Greer did have some interesting tidbits to back him up on the sisters being involved. There was no love lost between Rebecca and Dina, and it had been reported a fair few times that EMTs and police on the scene had heard Rebecca wailing that Dina is going to kill me after Max's accident. Then on July 15th, during another police interview, Jonah made several pointed comments about his ex-wife. When asked about the relationship between Rebecca and Dina, Jonah classified it as being, quote, at the edge of civil, which only seemed to reinforce the idea of how much Dina loathed Rebecca. He then made this shocking statement. When asked how his ex-wife reacted to hearing about Rebecca after Adam had called and broke the news to him over the phone, Jonah said she had one reaction when she heard about this. She was almost giddy that Rebecca was dead. That is a hell of a word choice if I have ever heard one. But was it true? Could the horrific and eventually fatal accident of her only child have been the catalyst for Dina finally snapping on Rebecca? And had it been her motive for killing her? It could have been, but hospital video surveillance and cell phone tower tracking showed that it was not. Video recordings showed Dina coming in and out of the hospital entrance several times throughout the night, and cell phone tower pings for each sister helped exonerate the twins from any involvement on the night of Rebecca's death. Keith Greer issued a uniquely sincere public apology during a press conference and then amended the initial lawsuit to laying the guilt solely at Adam Shackney's feet. Let's discuss Adam a little bit, shall we? 
For starters, the two Shackner brothers were incredibly different from each other. Whereas Jonah was a pharma tycoon, Adam made his living as a tugboat operator in Memphis. Throughout the investigation, Adam had proven to be combative and angry, often painting himself as a victim in the entire situation. The streak of indignation showed itself most noticeably during the polygraph session that Yona underwent on July 13, 2011. From the jump, Adam tried to discredit any weirdness that could potentially show up on his graph. He told the polygraph administrator that his heart would pound during any mention of Rebecca, since he had been the one to find her body the morning of the 11th. He admits to being the one to cut her down. In his own words, he said, quote, I got a knife from the butcher block thing, came back and cut her down and called 911 shortly after, if not before. I had to pull something out of her fucking mouth, a blue scarf. After I cut her down, I went to take her pulse. I remember having to get something out of the way of her hands. End quote. Awfully strange, these quotes. Strange in the fact that Adam willingly flaunts the fact that he did quite a lot of handling Rebecca's body before law enforcement and rescue personnel arrived. Stranger still when you remember the distinct lack of DNA throughout the investigation. DNA that was even missing on the very knife Adam claimed he used to cut Rebecca down. Not even partial prints because, as we know now, comprehensive fingerprinting wasn't done. And it becomes clear that a thorough fingerprinting wasn't done on Rebecca's body either. But guys, don't forget what a victim Adam Shackney is in all of this. The utter lack of sympathy he displayed during his questioning rings of being more than, you know, expected grief and tumultuous emotions of having discovered your brother's dead girlfriend just after your nephew suffered a horrific accident. Adam remarked at one point to the polygraph administrator that he, quote, came out here to try and help my brother and this is the shit I get pulled into. And that he's, quote, a pretty good fucking guy, you know. Much grief, very sympathy. Despite polygraph tests not being admissible in court because of how subjective they are, I also think it's important to note this. When asked the questions regarding the death of Rebecca, did you yourself do anything to her that resulted in her death? And a follow-up of, do you know if anyone else did anything to result in her death? Adam Shackney answered no. And he also failed both of those questions. In the spring of 2018, the wrongful death civil lawsuit against Adam brought on by the Zahao family went to trial. The trial focused on the claim that Adam had attacked Rebecca, killed her, and then created the baffling scene at the mansion to mislead investigators into thinking Rebecca had died by suicide after Max's accident. The jurors on this trial were asked to answer two questions. One, did Adam Shackney touch Rebecca Zahao before her death with the intent to harm her? Two, did that touching cause the death of Rebecca Zahao? For six weeks, lawyers for the defense and prosecution presented their cases, their experts, and their theories. And after six weeks, including a damning testimony from Dr. Sarah Weck, who claimed that in his opinion, quote, Rebecca was manually strangled and then it was set up to be a suicide, nine out of 12 jurors determined on April 4th, 2018, that Adam was liable for Rebecca's death and he was ordered to pay $5.2 million in damages to the Zahao family. Less than two weeks after this, Sheriff Gore, he who opened and shut Rebecca's case, claiming it was merely a suicide, announced his department would review the case of her death. Interesting. Even more interesting was how, in December 2018, Gore popped up again to say, 
oh, hey, no, we aren't changing our decision. This was a suicide. There's no new evidence. Thanks for playing. The SDSU was so bold as to discredit entirely the claim that the steak knife found coated in Rebecca's menstrual blood wasn't indicative of sexual assault, which simply, what the fuck to that? Because how else could you explain that? Then they proceeded to add insult to injury by saying, by trying to utilize private writings and musings Rebecca had written in her phone about her difficult relationship with Jonah's teenage children to present a claim that she was in fact of a suicidal mindset. This was not the case because the notes that they read weren't even in full context of the entire piece Rebecca had written, which was actually, like I just said, an almost diary-like entry about how disrespected she felt by Jonah's teenage children, how she wanted to stand up for herself, and that the money factor in her relationship wasn't a factor at all because it was love that kept her staying with Jonah despite these external hardships. So bravo to the sheriff for deciding to stand by the suicide determination without pursuing any new leads or re-interviewing witnesses and involved parties. Gore legitimately said, quote, after conducting this review, the case team found no evidence that led us to believe that Rebecca Zahau died at the hands of another. Cool, because that's certainly not what the civil case jury, science, countless of experts, and, you know, logic found to be the case. I I just, I can't even imagine the frustration the Zahau family feels. In that same month, on December 4th, Adam also popped his head back up and filed a motion for a new trial. He claimed that there had been jury misconduct that would certainly reverse the guilty verdict from April. Gang, I would like you all to meet Superior Court Judge Catherine Bacall because she shut that shit down and did so beautifully. After reviewing Adam's motion, she came in with a one-two punch, except it was actually a one-two-three punch, but that's beside the fact. Judge Bacall denied Adam's request for a new trial and even disagreed with his lawyer's claims that the jury had showed misconduct. And then went so far as to say that she too had questions about the criminal investigation findings and just how exactly the sheriff's department was so comfortable ruling Rebecca's death a suicide. Further sharing her own skepticism, Judge Bacall said, if Rebecca didn't kill herself, then someone else did. Judge Bacall decided to let the guilty verdict stand as she believed there is substantial evidence to support the wrongful death lawsuit. Still gung-ho to fight the ruling and have the verdict changed, Adam Schack and I arrived in court on February 7, 2019 for a post-trial hearing, only to find that his insurers had settled out of court with the Zahau family to the tune of $600,000 instead. The original $5.2 million claim was done away with, the lawsuit dismissed, and the guilty verdict still stands. Apparently, Adam had no idea his insurance was making the deal prior to the hearing, but he claimed after the hearing that they totally believed in his innocence and the insurance company just simply wanted to stop throwing money at the case. Insert sure jam gif here. Following the hearing, Keith Greer announces the Howe family is seeking the medical examiner to once again change the cause of death from suicide to homicide. And they have no qualms about bringing the case before a judge again if the Emmy refuses to do so. According to Greer, the Zahau family is not going to stop until Adam Shacknight is behind bars. As we wait for further action to be taken in this case, I have got some hashtag fucking questions that I want to explore with you all. Number one, in what world does anyone believe Rebecca Zahau, or much less any other human, would and or could die by suicide in such a convoluted manner? 
What is the explanation for the lack of DNA at the crime scene, even on the knife that Adam allegedly cut Rebecca down with? Why was there paint on Rebecca's nipples, breasts, and thighs, but none found on her hands? Why was there only a small spatter of blood found in the doorway of her room? Rebecca was on her period at the time of her death, and if we're to believe she actually hopped the length of her room and out to the balcony while naked, how the hell is there not more blood spatter found to prove that path that she allegedly hopped? Those of us who have had and experienced periods in our lives, you know what I'm talking about. Why the hell would Rebecca bind her feet together before jumping over the railing? The idea floated by the SDST is that she went to such measures to bind and gag herself to, so she couldn't back out. But the feet? Why does the police department ignore the suggestion of sexual assault via the steak knife when Rebecca was found with no penetrative wounds or even shallow cuts on her body? The blood was proven to be hers and then further proven to be her own menstrual blood. Why are they denying this strong possibility? Why was there such an immediate presumption from within the Shackknife family, both Adam and Jonah, that Asian guilt or shame was the determining impetus for Rebecca choosing to die by suicide? Was there a confirmation bias about what happened to Rebecca pervading throughout the police department before they even arrived to the scene? Were investigators influenced by Jonah's power and money to simply make the case go away? And finally, what the fuck did the message on the wall mean? So what did happen to Rebecca Zahao on the night of July 10th leading into the morning of July 11th? Throughout all the twists and questions and turns of this case, I honestly turn to Ocam's razor theory when it comes to my own. The simplest answer is most often correct. In my opinion, and nobody sue me, all right? I am terrified of Jonah Shack and I after all of this. I think it's far easier to believe Adam killed Rebecca than it is to imagine Rebecca going to these absurd lengths to die by suicide. The themes of a sexual crime taking place here are too strong to be ignored. The menstrual blood-soaked knife handle both sticks with me in its horrific suggestion and because it sticks out as a crucial piece of evidence. Was there a sexual advance made that was rebuffed, inciting anger to the point of physical violence? Was there some sort of sexual assault that proved fatal? A form of psychosexual sadism being forced onto another person? At this point, nine years later, I don't think we can say for certain what instigated the terrible actions taken against Rebecca on that night. But at the same time, while we might not have all the answers, there is one thing for sure. This case needs to be reopened, reinvestigated, and reexamined so we can find answers to those questions and bring long overdue peace to the Zahal family and to Rebecca's memory. And that, my friends, is the end of our first episode. I uh, just want to give a massive, massive shout out to everyone who has been so supportive of Dark as Hell from the start. And honestly, that start was truly just about two weeks ago when I was spitballing the idea around with some of my dearest friends as a way to figure out what I would do with all of this unemployed time. Uh, another huge thank you to the Murderiner Toasters group. I know we're in the middle of a collective name change right now, but I would be so remiss not to shout you all out for the support and encouragement and excitement that you guys have shown me. And all that said, please like and subscribe, follow, and if you feel so inclined, spread the word. You can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and over on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. I 
Really hope you enjoyed our first episode together. And with that, I'll see you here next week with another story that's dark as hell. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.